So we're in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Next week, we'll get back to our study through the gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 5 there. But today, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Now, that weekend, what happened that weekend? Why didn't, why didn't I preach this message? It was it so long ago you've forgotten? It snowed. <laughs> and then I wasn't here last Sunday because I had COVID. So here we are. And I love this message. I wanted to share it with you today. Hebrews chapter 10. It is about hope for the future. That's a word we use a lot in church and Christianity. It's all over the Bible, hope. But we often aren't quite sure what hope means, hope for the future. And I want you and I to have hope for this coming year. Now, often we think hope is, well, I'm going to feel hopeful because everything seems to be working out. But did you know, biblically, that's not what hope is. It's not that, well, you can see everything kind of coming together. It's working out for you, so you feel hopeful. Hope in the Bible is the assurance of a good outcome in the future, even in bad circumstances. It's not about a feeling of hopefulness. It is about the assurance of hopefulness because the Lord is faithful to watch out for us. It's not because circumstances are working out or because you're working your plan. It is purely because of who the Lord is. And because our hope is rooted in the fact that the Lord is faithful then regardless of whatever you're going through, you can have hope for the future. Did you hear me? And I want to shift your eyes, maybe even today, off of difficult circumstances and back onto the Lord. Because there is no hope in circumstances working out, right? Say amen. You got everything in line, everything is worked out, but as soon as you got it worked out, it's going to shift out of place. So you're hopeful, but don't hold your breath. And so the one thing that will give you hope for the future is making Jesus the center of your life. not your ability to control things. I was reminded of just the simplicity of this lesson. Now, in Christianity and really all of life, we get excited to, to hear some new thing. Teach me something I've never heard before that will be exciting. Well, I find that what I really need is to remember the things that I forgot. Several years ago, I think it was about four years ago, I preached on a Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel, Southeast Portland. Now, I pastored Calvary Chapel, Portland on the west side in the West Hills area. Then there's another Calvary over in the Clackamas area, and uh, my friend Doug Snow pastors there. And I preach at his church a couple of times a year. But And I preached one Sunday morning. Um, 
had to do some errands after church, did a couple things. By the time I got home that Sunday afternoon, my back was really hurting, my lower back. I have lower back issues. And so I thought, well, I know what to do because I've faced this all the time. I put some heat on it, stretched my back, but by Wednesday, I was still in a lot of pain. I finally gave in, called the chiropractor, who is a Christian, who anytime I go in to see my chiropractor because of back problems, because he's a Christian, he says, oh, Pastor Terry, you're probably, probably backslidden. <laughs> Did you know there was Christian chiropractor humor? So he said I was backslidden. I shared that joke one Sunday morning at a Calvary in Washington that I preached right after I had been to the chiropractor. I went back to the chiropractor that Sunday after, and he said, I have a patient who said to me that there was a guest speaker at her church that shared a joke about being backslidden. <laughs> That's really happened. So I go to these different churches, and they, they rat me out to my chiropractor. Anyway, so after my chiropractor fixed me this particular time, I said, well, can you tell me what exercise I need to do to keep this from happening? I mean, in a split second, he opened a file on me, and he said, now back in 2001, I told you to do this exercise. I said, well, it's all coming back to me. <laughs> so I'm going to open your personal Jesus file. And while you want to hear something new to fix your life, I'm going to remind you of old things you've heard before. Okay? There's nothing new. And that old thing is that the Lord is your hope that he is your hope. Now, let's look at our scripture. It's down in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. That day is the day when we will see the Lord face to face. Now, the theme of this is to hold fast to our confession of hope. Now, it doesn't say to hold fast to your hope. That's something different. Hold fast is used a lot of times in the Bible, and most of the time it is used to say you need to grab hold and hold on to it and don't let go. But in this place, in Hebrews 10, it doesn't mean that. It means to possess something. It means to then act on it, and it means to remember it. Now, the truth is, how many times have you told yourself or told God you would hold on and be faithful, and in difficult not times, you forgot to hold on to the Lord? 
Let me see your hands. My hand is going up. Now, I, I, I just, I think it is so healthy just to tell the truth. How many times have we pretended to be full of hope when we weren't? You're all a bunch of liars. <laughs> We're saying what we want to be true. I understand. Lord, I promise I will hold on to you. Those are the things you say when you're young or in trouble. And you learn through experience, you don't have the ability to hold on to the Lord. You may some days, then tomorrow is always coming. Another season is coming. Life is really more than you can take. And in this case, it says, hold fast to your confession of hope in the Lord. And right after that, it says, because he who promised is faithful. The reason we are holding fast, number one, we have a confession. We, we possess it. So there's three questions. If you're following with me, taking notes. Number one is, do you possess or have a confession of hope in Jesus? Not just say, yeah, I hope in Jesus, but do you have this confession in your life? I don't have my good glasses yet. These are just my readers. And for your new people, I've had two cataract surgeries in the last two months. So I can see you perfectly until I put my glasses on. So um, again, if you start to make faces at me, I'll just put my glasses on. It blurs the whole thing out. Do you have, actually have, a confession of hope in the Lord? Now, that word confess means to say the same thing or to agree with. That's what it means. It's not a feeling. I have hope in the Lord. That's not what I mean. So when the Bible says that your life is in God's hands, you either agree with that or you don't. I love the simplicity and the clarity of God's word. Your hope, your future is in God's hands. You agree or you don't agree. Do you agree with that? So number one, do you have this confession of hope? The answer is yes. If you can say yes, in spite of whatever is going on now, I agree that my future is in God's hands then you possess a confession or a, an agreement that your life, your hope, your future is in the Lord. And here's the thing that I love about that is in the worst of days, I can feel hopeless and still have a confession that my future is in the Lord's hands. That's what will save you. When you suddenly feel panicked and hopeless and things aren't working out, you think, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Well, it's life. Life is happening. And regardless of anything that can happen to you, the Lord is faithful. Nothing that can happen to you can in any way upset or disrupt God's plans for you. Do you know that? It doesn't matter what can come your way. Nothing can get in the way of God's plans for you. 
And so whatever is happening, you can still have this confession, Lord, my future's in your hands. You're gonna get me through this and you're gonna get me to whatever you have planned for me. Isn't that amazing? So I can have hope for the future even in the worst of days. Hope is not my excitement about what's coming. It's my assurance that the Lord is able. It is the assurance of a good outcome in the future. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a scripture most of you know. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That's a scripture that many of you have underlined, highlighted in your Bibles. You've probably heard that scripture and never, ever opened your Bible to the book of Jeremiah. You're going, Jeremiah? Who's, who's reading Jeremiah? And by the way, who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah was the prophet that God sent to the southern kingdom of Israel at one of their most rebellious times in Israel's history. You see, Israel had a pattern of turning away from God, worshiping idols, doing all this stuff to pretend to be God's people, but their hearts were completely somewhere else. And because of that, God, through Jeremiah, it says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to come and take you away captive into Babylon for 70 years. It's called the exile or the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament. That 70-year captivity once and for all cured Israel, the Israelites, of worshiping idols. Once they came back, they never worshiped idols again. But in this most difficult, rebellious time, Jeremiah is saying, you're about to be disciplined for 70 years in Babylon. And because of their rebellion, rebelliousness, they were saying, God, you hate us. You're not for us. You're against us. All that kind of stuff that little children say. You don't love me. And so when God through Jeremiah says these words, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. You know what God was saying? Stop telling me what I think about you. Just like a parent. You hate us. He goes, no, stop telling me what I think. I know my own mind. And God's saying, what I think are thoughts, are good thoughts. They're thoughts of peace to give you a future and a hope. In the worst of times, it didn't look like God was giving them a future and a hope because they were about to be overcome by the Babylonians. So whatever it looks like to you is not exactly what God is doing because there are times when you and I need to be disciplined. And he will do it to keep you from destroying your life and to bring you around to a point in which you will finally call out to him for help. They were so hard-hearted, they wouldn't call out to God for help. But God says in Jeremiah 29, 12, right after 29, 11, when you call on me, I will hear you. And that's always the promise. When you're ready, have you ever sent your kids to the room and said, well, when you're ready to talk to me, I'll be waiting for you. That's what my, my daughters do the, to their little kids. 
they get, I have three grown daughters and eight grandkids, and these little kids are pretty willful, shocking. <laughs> and my daughters say, I can't hear you right now. Go to your room. When you're ready to talk, you come and talk to me. God is saying that to Israel, Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12. God will discipline you in order to give you a future and a hope. Why? Because he is faithful who promised. You and I are not faithful. Is that shocking to hear? You know, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to say that. As a young pastor, I would have said, come on, you just need to be faithful. Are you struggling in your life? You just need to read the Bible more. Have you heard those messages? I've preached those messages. But now in my ripe old age, I can also say the other side of that message is, yes, you should be in God's word. You should be in prayer. But in spite of all of our well-placed efforts to be faithful to the Lord, in the end, life is more than we can take, and you will have moments where you're not faithful. That's not shocking, and in fact, I will even say that's normal. So it's not the end of the world when you see the worst come out of your, your heart and hear the worst of words come out of your mouth. One of my best friends uh, a man that I traveled the world with playing music back in the 80s, somebody I was in business with. We owned two haagen ice cream stores in California. About five years ago, within a six-month period of time, his wife, his mother, and his father all died. That is more than anybody should be able to take. And you can imagine the well-meaning, comforting Christians around here, him saying, oh, come on, brother, let's just trust the Lord. And when you hear those kinds of words in your season, and you will go through it, when you can't just hold on to the Lord, when, when you don't have any peace, it feels like a condemnation. Like, what's wrong with me that I can't just have peace in the middle of this hell that I'm going through? Where I am now in my career of preaching is to say, you're allowed to freak out. Just remember to maintain your confession of hope in the Lord because the Lord is going to bring you through this fiery trial and you're going to be okay. Do you have this? So the second question is, uh, do you act on it? That's the second definition of a confession of hope. You have to have this confession, but then in the middle of the difficulty, you have to make decisions based on that. You have to act on it. Don't just say you have a hope in the Lord. What decisions are you making? Because you see, when the freak out comes, when the panic comes, you will make decisions that you're going to regret later on. And so to have this confession of hope means 
to not only have it, but secondly, to act on it. And so every day, you and I are making decisions, real-life decisions, acting out whether we believe our life is in the Lord's hands or not. Your careers, how you spend money, what you do for entertainment, people you hang out with, who you're going to marry, all of these daily decisions are toward your future. Now, you could easily say, well, my life's in the Lord's hands. I'll go ahead and do what I want, and the Lord will work out my life. That's, that's the carnal Christian, as we might say. That's somebody, a Christian, whose heart really isn't on the Lord. You're going to use the grace of God as an excuse or a justification for sin. And because of that, we preachers aren't supposed to talk to you about the grace of God. Not too much, because you might go crazy. But the fact is, if you really love the Lord, you're not going to go crazy. See, either I love the Lord or I don't. Pastor Chuck, many, many years ago, Chuck Smith, I, uh, we attended uh, Costa Mesa through the 80s and have been to so many pastor's conferences with Pastor Chuck. He used to talk all the time about uh, saying, what kind of relationship do you really want with God? You either want a love relationship or you want a legal relationship. It's your choice. It's only one of the two. You're going to have a love relationship with God or a legal relationship with God. You know what a legal relationship? It's where you, between God, you and you, God, you say, well, if I do this, if I read my Bible, then you're going to bless me. If I tithe to the church, then you're going to protect me and give me the things I've been praying for. It's a legal arrangement. That's what you have with your employer. Do you know that? Here's a shocker. Your employer doesn't love you. You have a legal relationship. You perform a duty and your employer pays you. You might be friends, but it's really a legal relationship. Are you with me? Do you want that kind of relationship with God? Then stop acting like it. And what it looks like is you think you've been good, so then God's going to owe you something. We say we don't want that relationship, but we act on it. We actually are living that way. What you really want is a love relationship with God. And even in this dedication of these three beautiful children with the Kriegers, adoption is our relationship with God. You weren't born into the family of God the first time. You were born through an, a, a, you were born again, but it's an adoption process. He chose you, which is scary enough in itself. God knew you and he chose you anyway. Do you know that? Think about that for a minute. 
when he, when he brought you into the family and you started acting out, you didn't surprise God with your bad behavior. Why did God choose you? Because he loves you. And in turn, you come into the family because you also choose to love God in return. It is completely a love relationship. So while we do obey God, it's not the basis for being blessed. It's just because you're in the family now. So start acting like a child of God. You belong here. Nobody's looking at you and thinking, well, you don't really belong here. Have you ever felt like that? You, you dressed up nice, but people are going to think, I don't really go to church very much. If you've ever last asked the Lord into your heart, then you are in the family of God and you belong here. Even though a few of you, maybe just a few of you, might have a few little personality issues to work out. <laughs> just speaking hypothetically. But you belong here. And because you're aware of your little quirks, you're afraid that God's not going to bless you because you're living in a legal relationship. So stop it. Okay? I sound like a dad, don't I? Well, I'm a grandpa now, so knock it off. <laughs> Get rid of that anxiety that God isn't going to, that you don't belong here, or God doesn't love you, or he's not going to bless you because you're a little weird. We're all a little, we all have issues. You can keep yours a secret. Thank you very much. But we're in. And because we have a love relationship, we can all just relax and be here. You don't want a legal relationship with God. Did I say all that right? Amen. Amen. So, Number one, do you have a confession of hope? Can you say, my future is in the Lord's hands? Amen? Amen? Okay, so you have it. Secondly, are you acting on it? And so there's no quiz at the end. I just want you to be mindful that decisions you're making are based, are going to expose whether you really believe your future is in the Lord's hands or not. Okay? The third question is, when the stressful days come, do you remember that you have a confession of hope in the Lord? Because that's the hardest one. That is the hardest one. As I shared about my friend, my friend Mike in California, his mother, his father, his wife all die in six months. That's the time you lose your confession of hope. And here's the thing, what stress does to you, what overwhelming stress does to you and crisis is it automatically causes you to forget or question things you never questioned before. Have you been there? Things you never would have questioned, whether God loves you, whether you are really a child of God, whether, whether God is 
watching out for you and bring you to, to a good outcome. Things that you thought, these are settled issues. When the crisis comes, it, it just feels like you don't know anything. And I have absolutely been there. I don't, I don't think I know anything. I can't count on anything. My wife and I have been through times of crisis that were so stressful it not only challenged our marriage, but we ended up leaving California and even coming to Portland. It felt like I had just failed at everything. I was 35 years old. Business was shut down. Ministry was shut down. It affected friendships. It's like everything that was my life, it just ended. It felt like the big crash of Job. When that happens, you lose your confession of hope. That's, that's the normal emotional reaction to crisis and severe crisis. But let me tell you, those times aren't catching God off guard. Off guard. They surprise you and me, but they don't surprise God. And it is in those times in my life that I have learned the greatest lessons about God. Because you thought, you think, I realized I, I knew God was faithful as long as I was able to manage things. But what about in the seasons where everything is going wrong and I can't control anything? Your only hope is the Lord. Lord, if you don't get me through this, I have no idea what to do. It is in those seasons of my life where I have discovered how completely faithful the, the Lord is. I don't have hope because I'm able to hold things together. I have hope in the days when I am doing well, and I have hope in the times when everything is going wrong. And everybody gets their turn. So if it's your turn now or another time, it's okay. Everybody gets their turn. And whenever it's your turn, others around you should be there to just encourage you. Not to heap on the guilt. Come on, you're not praying enough. Come on, you should just try harder. How about, hey, it's your turn? Great, I'll be praying for you. It was in that season in our life when I became the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Portland. Everything had just gone wrong. I have three little kids, six, eight, and 10, our three little girls. Business fails. Ministry shuts down. Friendships. We come up to, to Portland because we have family. I called the pastor. I didn't plan on sharing this story. I called the pastor of the church I pastored. Calvary Chapel, Portland, just to talk to the pastor and make any kind of contact in Portland. An elder called me back after I left a voicemail and said, uh, well, who are you? I said, my name's Terry. I'm thinking of moving to Portland. Just want to talk to the pastor. He calls me back. He says, by the way, our pastor just resigned two weeks ago, stood up on a Sunday morning and said, this is my last Sunday. They were in a crisis. I was in a crisis. 
I explained who I was, that I had, had come from Costa Mesa, that I was preparing for ministry. They said, would you like to preach this Sunday? I said, no, it can't be that easy. <laughs> this is a trick, right? They said, we've been praying about whether to shut down the church or continue. We come up going, Lord, what do you have for us? I end up preaching that Sunday morning and became the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Portland in 1993 at probably one of the worst crisis times in my life. And through that season, what I saw was how faithful the Lord is. That when I have failed at everything, then the Lord does his best. And that season of refining prepared me for the ministry because now I have to stand in front of you and tell you to trust the Lord. And it has to be way more than some scripture I read out of the Bible. Come on, let's trust the Lord. But it has to be the real lessons that I have learned in the fiery furnace. And I've learned them. And a few times. I just want to share a last story as we wrap this up today. I have shared before that uh, I grew up in a home where my father was an alcoholic. I'm the youngest of five. I have three older sisters. Uh, my brother's in heaven now, but I never knew a day that my dad didn't drink. And I know this is not an uncommon story that even some of you have grown up in abusive homes. And uh, so, but what I realize now as an adult, the long-term effects that that had on my life, and one of them is that I was literally, I feel trained as a child to be hopeless. And how that works is that abusive parents make promises over and over again that they don't keep. Hey, I promise this weekend we'll go to the lake. Hey, next summer we'll do this. Hey, for Christmas, I'll buy you a new bike. I heard that kind of stuff over and over from my father. And guess what? He never kept any of those promises. So over and over, you get conditioned to never expect good things to happen to you. That's the conditioning of a child that grows up in an abusive home. Even as an adult, I still have the residual of that. When I was around 18 to 20, I, uh, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, Torrance, Carson area. And uh, I was a gymnast in high school and a year of college. And then I was a gymnastics coach for a, a club private girls team. And all the kids on, on club level gymnastics or soccer or anything, that's an expensive sport. They were all kids of doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists from Palos Verdes, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, all the rich kids. And I was this poor kid from Carson. They had every advantage, and I didn't have much, I felt like. About 15 years ago, I got a Facebook message from a woman asking, are you the Terry McNabb that used to coach gymnastics at this gym? It was one of the 
little girls that I coached back in the late 70s. And she said, we're going to have a reunion of that whole team. Would you come down to Long Beach? And I went. And so these are all the kids of the, of the rich parents that I coached when I was a dysfunctional teenager. And so it was a flashback. And I, get, I go see them. And I kind of in that moment saw my life jump way forward and their lives. And what I was able to see is how good my life had turned out. Me who had no advantage, no parent that was going to direct me or guide me, I was left hopeless. And here are these rich kids now older, and my life had turned out really, really good. And let me tell you, when I was young, I said, Lord, if I'm going to have any future and a hope, it's going to be up to you because my parents aren't going to do anything. And uh, it's my testimony that I've put this to the test. The Bible says that we are God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10. You are God's workmanship his poema, his, his poem, that he is preparing us for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there is a, a good work, a great thing for, that God has prepared for each of you to do. And if you're willing, he will prepare you for that work. And I feel like I get to do that now in spite of whatever was lacking in my childhood, whatever promise that was never kept, I, I, I feel like I'm standing here with you and with my, my beautiful daughters and my eight grandkids. My marriage is intact. April 3rd this year is our 40th anniversary. We still like each other. And I see how faithful the Lord has been. Through my immature years, because of the abuse, I was still immature through my 20s, 30s, and maybe a little bit of my 40s. Neglected children grow up late. And I can say to you that the Lord is faithful. So wherever you are in your life today, um, See, the thing is, when people have been through really hard things, I tend to maybe not be overly sympathetic because in spite of anything you've been through, it's your choice to trust the Lord or not. Those hard circumstances do not prevent God from blessing you today. So what I have been through makes me compassionate, but a little not compassionate, okay? Can you handle that? I'm sorry for what you've been through. But your life is in the future. So will you trust the Lord today is really the only factor here. And stop using your past as an excuse. We all have a past. Your past becomes your testimony not your stumbling block. 
Did you hear me? I'm going to have the worship team come up before I forget what time it is. Let me say that again. Your past is your testimony, not your stumbling block. It's not the thing, well, you don't understand what happened to me. Well, maybe I do. But what you're saying is, God is not powerful enough to overcome whatever I've been through. Do you mean to say that? I don't think you do. When you and I are facing a problem, we think this one's hard, but this one's easy. I can't imagine what it's like to be God where everything is easy. There's nothing hard for God except for his children who have hard hearts. So your only choice is to say, Lord, I confess, I agree that you're the one who has my future in his hands. Amen?